So why don't you open up your Bibles to Romans 1 and remind one another as we hear from Paul about the importance of this momentous news. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. For I am obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for... I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, if you just joined us tonight, I'd like to introduce you again to our speaker, who's already taught us well today, um, Gary Miller. Uh, Gary is a Northern Irishman married to Fiona, a Scot who was born in Peru. He's dad to Lucy, Sophie and Rebecca. He loves teaching people about Jesus from the Bible. Gary's been the principal of Queensland Theological College in Brisbane since January 2012, Before that, he was the pastor of a pair of Presbyterian churches in Dublin. Now, Gary is here, as as anyone who's up the front, not as a performer to be applauded or a special person to be uh, honoured in. in, he's He's a brother and he's a servant. And so the way that we can welcome him is by opening our Bibles, opening our ears... Um, and praying for him rather than clapping. So let's do that. I'll invite you to come up and I'll pray for you, Gary, as we get our Bibles and our hearts ready. <laughs> our loving Father, we um, come to you and, and we know that even as your people, we are in need for your blessing again and again uh, to hear your word truly, to understand it and see its relevance to our lives. We pray that your spirit be our teacher tonight, that he convicts us of sin again draws us back to repent and put our faith in the gospel of Christ, that he leads us to become more like Christ. And we pray for our brother Gary that he may speak with clarity, uh, he may speak with love, but he may first of all seek to honour you in his ministry among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mikey. Um, uh, Unusually, I... uh I kind of feel slightly strange about coming here tonight. I, I don't know about you. I find uh, Steve's, Steve's talk this afternoon so helpful that in many ways I, I'm, I'm not an introvert, but I actually would rather just go and uh, kind of sit and you know, reflect on some of the, the challenges that, that, uh, that Steve led before us, but also believe in a sovereign God, so he, he knows what he's doing. Um, having us here this evening, sitting under the sign of his word again. Um, also, I've got to say, I've got a complaint to make. I can't, I don't know, I know Scott doesn't normally bother coming into the sessions, but uh, wherever Scott is, it's not fair. Steve got a part, your brief must have run the pages 
Steve, you know, it's this afternoon, he's not allowed to teach the Bible and has to be personal and has to talk about specific illustrations. My brief for this evening was a little more succinct than that. Four words, keeping the gospel central. So thanks, Scott, for that. Um, and now my guess is that tonight, if you're anything like me, you see that and you go, well, you have fairly low expectations. I mean, you kind of know what's coming in a talk called Keeping the Gospel Central. I mean, if we'd run twin tracks this evening, you know, Keeping the Gospel Central and Making the Gospel Peripheral, you know, well, you'd still have shown up to this one even just to keep your boss off your back if he's here. So, you know, even as I wander through this introduction, you know, you're selling back into your seat ready to endure entirely predictable exhortations to keep the Bible at the center and evangelism at the center. And you're kind of bracing yourselves for, you know, an appeal to cling to orthodoxy, come what may. And you're geared up instinctively for warnings against making too much of personality and pragmatism and yada, 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 yada. But I'm not going to do any of that, or at least not very much of that. I'm going to do two things here. I'm going to try to explain Romans 1, 1 to 17 to you because it's always better for me to teach the Bible than to indulge my admittedly strong desire to sound off about everything that's wrong with the church and young people today. But, 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 but I'm going to intersperse that with just a few warnings, suggestions about ways in which we may actually, well, really signs that we're slipping from keeping the gospel central, which I think people committed to church planting are prone to slip into, and which I think do emerge fairly naturally uh, from Romans 1. Whether you think they emerge naturally from Romans 1 remains to be seen, but enough of that. Um, Famously in his preface to his commentary uh, on Romans, Martin Luther says this, this epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily, for it is the soul's daily bread. It can never be read or meditated on too much and too well. The more thoroughly it's treated, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. If we want to keep the gospel central, what better place to go than Romans? where we get to see the gospel in all its glory and more than that, be moved to savor it and treasure it. But it does raise one question that we need to settle before we go any further. What is the gospel? That's a question, it's not really fair, but we ask everyone who interviews to come to QTC this question. It's always the second question. You know, so it's, what is your name? What is the gospel? You know? And they're just kind of settling nervously into the room and trying to remember people's names. You know, and the, the registrar sitting there with a pen to write it down, you know, so that this is recorded. And then we say, oh, and by the way, there's only two lines, you know, for you to sum it up. But it's very telling, you know. And I do think we need to know the answer to that question. In fact, I'm so committed to this that what I'm going to suggest is that you turn to the person next to you, you kind of get in twos, okay? And one of you is going to have 30 seconds to explain what the gospel is, okay? Now, it's the one whose first name comes first in alphabetical order, okay? You don't need a long conversation to work that one out, okay? Okay? So there you go. You get 30 seconds starting now. Okay, that's enough. Sorry. Best of order, please, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. You've blown your opportunity if you weren't able to explain it that quickly. Okay. So what, what is the gospel? Do we actually have that clear in our minds, on our lips? The best I could do is the gospel is the marvelous news of all that the Father has done and is doing and will do for us in the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. Okay. Something like that. To keep the gospel central is to believe this and to live it, and to allow this to shape and correct every idea and strategy and emotion. To, to keep the gospel central is to proclaim this and explain it, and to hold it out to all people, whether they're Christians or not, publicly and privately. To live and breathe this gospel, the marvelous news of all that the Father has done and is doing and will do for us in the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. 
That's why Paul writes Romans. He writes this letter, and state the obvious, Romans is a letter. It's a 22-page long, 7,100-word letter, but it's a letter written to ordinary people who make up a local church. It's a real letter written to real people in the middle of the real world to help them to keep the gospel central. Paul wants them to get three things. He wants them to be clear on the gospel. He wants them to be committed to partnership in the gospel with him and with each other. And he wants them to be passionate about mission. See, Romans isn't Paul's attempt to write a systematic theology. He wrote it so that people like us would be clear on the gospel and be committed to working with other gospel-hearted people and be wholeheartedly committed to evangelism together. See, when you read Romans, you're not supposed to go, I now have my theology sorted out. We're supposed to grasp the message of Jesus more fully. We're supposed to work more effectively with the people of Jesus and to long to see more people come to know Jesus. Romans really is deeply practical, and it's all about keeping the gospel at the center of everything. So when we read this book, we can't expect of our thinking challenged and straightened out by God, to have our wrong attitudes and our independence exposed by God, and to have our hearts moved and our wills galvanized by God as by His Spirit, He works this gospel deeper under our skin and into our lives. Because that's what God does. He works through His Word by His Spirit. And that's very obvious in this opening chapter. In Romans 1, 1 to 17, Paul introduces himself, but even that's not quite true. Because he hardly says anything about himself. But, but what he does is show us what life is about for him, what, he, what drives him, what he cares about, what he lives for. He demonstrates what it means for him to keep the gospel central. It's not really complicated. In verses 1 to 4, Paul starts off by making it clear that for him, life is all about Jesus. You probably know, one verse one's just got 10 words in Greek. Kind of hard to capture it in English, but it's Paul, Christ Jesus, slave, appointed apostle, dedicated to God's gospel. Kind of emphatic. Why does Paul start like this? Because he wants to say up front that for him, Paul, it is all about Jesus. His life, his message is all about Jesus Christ. And even that, before we got out of verse 1, is a huge challenge. Paul's message and his life match up. They're both radically Christ-centered. To know Paul, it seems, was to be confronted with Christ. For Paul, it really was all about Jesus, and that came out even when he had only 10 words to describe himself. I wonder if you'd been asked on the multiply booking form to describe yourself in 10 words. How would, you, how would you have gone with that? Gary, husband, father, Irishman, servant of Christ in the colonies. That's kind of the best I could do. You know? You know. But for Paul, nine out of 10 words in his mini autobiography are about Jesus. Now, I know Paul had a special, you know, once in history commission to head up this breakthrough for the gospel in the Gentile world. But Paul wasn't like this because of his job or his calling. It was because he was utterly captivated by the power and beauty of Jesus. Just look at how many ways in these opening verses Paul makes sure that Jesus Christ is front and center. He says he's a bonded servant of Jesus Christ. The point isn't that he lived in terrible conditions or that he was mistreated or that he didn't get paid. Remember, the majority of people in the Roman world were slaves, and for some of them, life was pretty cushy. What bound all slaves together was that they all belonged to somebody else. And that's Paul's point. He belongs to Christ. Jesus is his owner, his boss. He was called by Jesus to be his messenger, his, his emissary, his apostle to the Gentiles, as he explains in 1 verse 5. Jesus is his life, his preoccupation, his mission, his everything. He's been set apart for the gospel of God, which is all about Jesus. Now, I have to pause there for just a second. There are three key phrases in this chapter. Um, if you're interested, they're all genitives. If you're not interested, they're still all genitives. And they're, they're all ambiguous. And here, here's the first. It's the gospel of God. Okay. Now, is this the gospel about God? It's the objective genitive. Or the gospel which comes from God? It's the subjective genitive. Okay. The answer? 
Yes. When Paul uses this construction, he almost always has both possible meanings in mind. It's it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. Does the gospel come from God, or is it about God? Yes, it's both. And this is the message that's both captured and captivated Paul. And he makes it clear this message is all about Jesus. According to Paul, the gospel of God is all about the Old Testament being fulfilled by Jesus and the revelation of God in Jesus. He just calls him the son, by which Paul seems to mean that Jesus is both the pre-existent son of God, the one who's been with the father from the beginning, and the true Israel. For Israel is called repeatedly God's son in the Old Testament, but they can never live up to that name. But now the son, the only one who can pull off faithful obedience, has shown up and stepped into our world as an actual descendant of David, the heir promised in 2 Samuel 7, the messianic king. He becomes a human being according to the flesh. In other words, he steps into the old order. He steps into Adam's world, the world of sin and death, where salvation seems impossible before being raised as the first member of a new race, a new order. The victorious Jesus, the second Adam, is then installed by the Spirit as the ruler of the universe. Jesus is the Son of God with power, who was anticipated in Psalm 2 and Daniel 7. For Paul, because of this Jesus, everything has now changed. The exile of God's people is over. The promises of God have been fulfilled. A new age has begun. And it's all because of Jesus. So his gospel is all about Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul does everything he can to keep Jesus front and center. Jesus is his message, his Lord, his great love. I don't know if you've noticed, Paul packs a staggering amount of Christology into the first four four verses of this ordinary letter. Let's make sure that in the midst of our planning and dreaming and gospeling, in the middle of our church responsibilities and family responsibilities, that we don't lose sight of our first love that we never tire speaking of our first love. Let's make sure that we see and savor Jesus and talk endlessly about Jesus. Let's bore people with Jesus if that were possible. Because, you know, it's all too easy, strangely, to be utterly preoccupied by the gospel and committed to the gospel and the the work of the gospel, but to lose sight of the one who is the gospel. The gospel is the window by which we see Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit. Let's make sure we don't spend our lives staring at the glass, saying, wow, this clear stuff is really cool. Let's gaze at the glory of Jesus, (laughs) because it's about him. One of my favorite old hymns, Charles Wesley's Jesus, the name high over all, ends like this. His only righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaim. It's all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death. Behold, behold the Lamb. I reckon Paul could have sung that. Because for Paul, it's all about Jesus. And that takes us to the first little batch of three ways that are signs that for us the gospel may not be central. That the gospel in all its fullness isn't shaping our our life and our practice. The first one is simply that we're not talking enough about the person of Jesus. That we're not talking enough about his beauty and power and attractiveness and awkwardness and the glory of Jesus. I find it easy to talk about the gospel. But I find it too easy not to talk enough about Jesus who is the goal, the end of the gospel. When I'm preaching, I find it much easier to do exegesis than I do to hold up the beauty of Jesus. When I'm teaching or preaching, I find it much easier to think about how the the biblical theology of this passage works out. How does this passage fit into the whole flow of the Bible? How does it talk about Jesus? Then I do sometimes to talk about his beauty and power and love and tenderness. 
when I do that, it's a sure sign that actually the gospel is not central in my life. Because when the gospel's central, I talk about Jesus. The second sign that we may have allowed the gospel to be shifted from its central place is when we downplay the power of Jesus. When we stop talking about Jesus as the great transformer who in the power of the Spirit makes a real difference in our lives. When we start telling people, suggesting that the best we can do is just kind of just stagger along between now and the new creation. When we stop talking about the reality of God's ongoing transforming work in our lives through the power of the Spirit, making us like Jesus, when we slip into an under-realized eschatology, it's a sure sign that the gospel is no longer central. And when we underplay our relationship with Jesus, I think the gospel is not central in our lives. See, the striking thing in the New Testament is that union with Christ, that knowing Christ, that being one of Christ's people, being reconciled to God in Christ, leads to all all kinds of real-time relational benefits, joy and peace and love for Jesus. I suspect that many of us have overreacted a little to excesses of previous generations. You know, if like me, you can remember the, the kind of early 80s, really was the vintage, the vintage age of Christian music. We had an endless repertoire of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs. They were truly appalling. Just thank God that you do not have to sing or listen to any of those anymore. And for some of us, there was an inappropriate language that we reacted against and we end up sounding like we don't really have any relationship with Jesus at all. We need exegesis in biblical theology. We need to teach the gospel. Jesus seems to think we need to know him and his father through him. When that gets misplaced, I think we're not keeping the gospel central. Because it's all about Jesus. But then verses 5 to 6, Paul goes on to say, look, for me, it's also all about mission. Those two things just can't be separated. The Jesus who is the son of David, the Messiah, and has been crowned as the son of God with power, has also broken into Paul's life to give him a specific, divinely defined role. Paul moves swiftly onto that in verse 5. Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. God has incredibly graciously given Paul, the persecutor of the church, the responsibility of ensuring that the gospel goes to the nations. The multi-ethnic church in Rome which at this stage was almost certainly largely Gentile, it's his responsibility. It's his responsibility to make sure that the gospel gets to Spain, which he asked the Romans to help with at the end of the letter. It's Paul's job to do everything he can to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. That obedience of faith phrase is another of those tricky Pauline phrases I mentioned. It could mean the obedience which consists of faith, In other words, the one thing which God commands us to do is to put our trust in him. That is obedience. Or it could mean the obedience which flows from faith. So it's a way of saying that when we trust Jesus, it really should overflow to every part of our lives and impact the way in which we think and act. So which is it? Surprise, surprise, I think it's both. For Paul, faith is both how we come to Christ in the first place and how we keep living for Christ. Faith is both the obedience which God asks of us and the engine which drives further obedience. For the Christian, we never get beyond living by faith. Now, as a footnote, I do think it's important to remember that the Apostle Paul was clearly a very smart man. When he uses all these ambiguous genitive phrases, you think he might just have done it on purpose? Do you think that Tertius, who wrote this letter down for Paul, said tentatively, Paul, excuse me, it's not really clear whether your genitives are objective or subjective here. Do you think Paul said, oh, wow, I really hadn't thought of that. We better change them all. No, Paul knew what he was doing when he wrote the gospel of God and the obedience of faith. 
and to destroy the surprise, the righteousness of God in verse 17 that we'll come to in a few minutes. See, the obedience of faith, which leads to the honoring of Jesus and his work and his character and his beauty among the nations, starts with trusting Jesus and grows as we trust Jesus. You see, for Paul, it makes clear that mission is nothing more and nothing less than repeatedly calling people to trust God decisively and enduringly. This is what Paul was about. This is his mission statement. Paul says that what God calls all of us to is this obedience of faith. What does that mean for us? There are a couple of important implications of this for God's work in our lives and for our part in God's mission to the world. The first is the rather obvious statement that trusting Jesus is the key to obedience. If we examine our lives and see deep-rooted patterns of disobedience, if we're discouraged at the lack of progress in our spiritual journey, if we continue to act in the same God-dishonoring ways, then the first place we ought to look for the source of the problem is here, with our faith. The problem is, of course, we do tend in the church today to use the word faith in a thoroughly unbiblical way. It's often depicted as something that's caught rather than taught, like the spiritual equivalent of the Ebola virus. You kind of get it, you don't. There's not much you can do about it. You know, so we're, we're told that we need to have more faith, but it's not exactly explained how we can work it up or where you get it. And so, I mean, and you've seen this. Desperate, well-meaning followers of Jesus go through all kinds of spiritual gymnastics to try to get more of this thing called faith. But when we read Romans or any part of the Bible, faith is so much more earthy than that. It's not, it's not a, a kind of vague spiritual feeling. It's a well-grounded trust in a person. God acts and speaks in Jesus, and we watch and listen. And on the basis of who Jesus is, we trust him. We put our faith in him. And yes, as Paul will point out, the ability to trust is a gift from God, but it's a gift from God that issues in clear thinking and rational decisions to trust Jesus rather than ourselves. In other words, if we're thinking clearly and if we're making wise decisions, if we're trusting Jesus, then we'll obey him. It's not that simple. See, whatever has brought you to multiply can say with certainty that for you, faith is the key. Because we're called to the obedience that comes from faith. So the key to obedience is thinking and acting in ways which fit with the fact that Jesus is utterly trustworthy. And if that's gone wrong, it's because we've chosen to trust someone or something else other than Jesus. Um, one of the advantages of being a theological college principal um, which I never thought I would be. I wanted to be a pastor, church planter for my whole life, and God had other ideas. But there are some perks. Uh, one of them is that I do get a bit more time to read. I used to have a system when I was in kind of local church ministry, and I would see really important books that I wanted to read, and I would buy them, and I would put them in a special place in my bookshelf. And they would stay there, and every time I walked past, I would go, you know, I really need to read that. And then what would happen is I would buy another one, and I would put it on the shelf, and I would take the one off the end, and I'd put the one off the end in my bookcase over there, the books that I either had read or was never going to read. So I did this for some years, and I just had a great collection of books that made the journey from, I might read this sometime to, I'm never going to read this pile. One of the good things about my job now is I do actually have, a t have the chance sometimes. You know, if people come in and see me reading at my desk, they kind of think that's appropriate, and it's okay. And no one says, what are you doing? Have you nothing else to do? You know, there are people clamoring. Well, not clamoring. There are people out there who need you to go and do things for them. Okay? And one of the things I was able to do, I read Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. And Luther is describing faith, as he often does. And he's talking about what real faith looks like. And he says something astonishing. Now, it's not really long, slightly long quotes. A bit risky at this time of the evening, reading ten, you know, seven or eight lines of Luther. Try to stay with me. I'll let you know when I've finished so you can kind of come back and join us if you've made use of the time in other ways. But here goes, okay? God has promised his grace to the humbled, okay? To the self-deploring and despairing, 
But a man, Luther says, cannot be thoroughly humbled until he comes to know that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsel, endeavors, will, and works, and absolutely depending on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, that is, of God only. So God gives his grace to people who know that they need it. For if, Luther goes on, as long as he has any persuasion that he can do even the least thing himself towards his own salvation, he retains a confidence in himself and does not utterly despair in himself, so long as he is not humbled before God, but he proposes to himself some place, some time, some work, whereby he may at length attain salvation. Okay? If he does any of that, he rules himself out of grace. But he who hesitates not to depend wholly on the goodwill of God, he totally despairs in himself, chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work in him, and such a one is nearest unto grace that he might be saved. Okay? So, if we're desperate, God gives us grace. But then this. The rest resist this humiliation. They condemn the teaching of self-desperation. They wish to have left a little something that they may do themselves. These secretly remain proud and adversaries to the grace of God. Now, Luther's point, by the way, we'll finish the quotation, come back. Luther's point's actually very simple, but it's very profound. He said the opposite of faith is not doubt, In fact, Luther says in this context, it's not even unbelief. The opposite of faith is pride. It's pride that refuses to trust. It's pride that refuses to listen. It's pride that refuses to obey. So if we're not obeying, if our lives aren't marked by the obedience of faith, it's because of our pride. As we continue to reflect on this and this, kind of word for today that God has been presenting us with. Could it be that our greatest need is to humble ourselves? Secondly, I think this little phrase is just a blunt challenge to make sure we do obey. Obedience is where it's at for Paul. It's just what Christians do. Christians don't make resolutions or have good intentions. We obey. That's what Christ enables us to do, tells us to do, equips us to do. Over the last couple of months, just for myself, I've been reading a little series of books called Famous, well, insert name of Famous Christian and the Christian Life. The great series. Mike Horton did, uh, he did Luther, um, Carl, or Carl Truman did Luther, Mike Horton did Calvin, and there's one by John, on Jonathan Edler, Edwards by a friend of mine called Dan Ortland. Um, they're just really great, easy to read, engaging, personally challenging. And, and writing about Jonathan Edwards, Dan Ortland says this, Edwards points out that for Christians, even good intentions aren't enough if they don't issue in obedience. I beg your pardon? Even good intentions aren't enough if they don't issue in obedience. For good intentions without the follow-through of actual deeds simply expose the true state of the heart. Dan says, Edwards creates a delightful word at this point. Woodings, the things we would do. Woodings. And Edwards says, that religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless woodings. Part of me wants to say, I paid money for this book for it to make me feel like this, you know? Don't you get any marks for effort? No. Let's not make excuses. Let's repent of our pride, trust in Jesus, and do what he says, following through on our good intentions to real concrete obedience. For this is where the gospel of God takes us. See, the the mission of Paul, the mission which along with all God's people we share in, is not a small thing. It involves transformation of people's lives and ultimately transformation of the whole cosmos for the glory of Jesus. It produces the obedience of faith in people like you and me. And that can only happen when we live and breathe and live and speak this message which is all about Jesus and drives us out in mission. Paul says, it's all about Jesus, it's all about mission. Now, if if we get this, the gospel will be central. But if we allow the gospel to slip out of center, well, here are three more signs that show we really haven't got this or gripped by it and are living by it. 
if the gospel is not central, we will not be concerned with global mission. We won't have any global concern. But if we're not concerned to see all the Gentiles come to the obedience of faith, and the Jews as well, for that matter, there is something wrong. If we have so compartmentalized the world that we're only concerned with our demographic in our community, it's a sign we haven't grasped the gospel. If in our local church gatherings, we have a token picture of a missionary on the wall, the gospel is not central. If we're saying, well, you know what? I'm going to concentrate on planting this church and then we'll worry about the rest of the world. The gospel is not central. No global concern is one sign. Lack of prayer is another. If we think we can do it, we won't pray. It's, it's that simple. If we're not really looking for people to be brought to the obedience of faith, we won't pray. If we're not looking for surprising people to come to the obedience of faith, we won't pray. If we're not praying, our grip on the gospel is fairly loose. And if we set the bar too low, if there's a lack of gospel ambition, again, we're not being gripped by the gospel. If we slip into just muddling along, maintaining numbers, hitting goals, there's something out of kilter. Because yes, of course, it's hard. And yes, God is sovereign and he gives the growth. But there should be something in all of us that like Paul says, we are in this to see the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for the glory of his name across the world. And that's underlined by where Paul finishes, and it's quite surprising in 7 to 15. Paul says it's all about people. Now, there's a slight paradox. It is true in the first place that the message of the Bible is not actually about us. It's about God. And we need to keep coming back to that because we're so naturally self-preoccupied and narcissistic that we're capable of making almost any passage in the Bible, and in fact, any moment of our lives, all about us. And this is why biblical theology is so important, ensuring that the way in which we read the Bible and teach the Bible is shaped by the Bible's grand narrative that's God-centered and Christ-focused. But once we've got that in place, we also have to see that it is all about us. Here, it's all about the Romans. Paul has just launched into what will become his magnum opus, one of the most theologically rich parts of the whole Bible. And what does he do? He starts to go on about these Roman Christians and his travel arrangements. It's kind of disappointing. He says, come on, Paul, it's Romans. Leave out the travel itinerary. Get to the action. I went to study uh, theology in Aberdeen in uh, northern Scotland. And partly because the professor of New Testament was a man called uh, I. Howard Marshall. At the time, uh, Howard was probably the leading evangelical New Testament scholar in the world. He'd just written a massive, very dull commentary on the Greek text of Luke and the Tyndale commentary on Acts and, and a pile of other stuff. He was the chair of the Tyndale Fellowship and Society for the Study of the New Testament. He'd already studied more, uh, supervised more PhDs than anyone I'd ever heard of. I was going to study because of this giant. Then I met him. He was small, blinked in bright light, and was quite shy. <laughs> to, be, to be honest, the, the first, time, first time I met him, my friend said, there, were these, there was this little guy in the library. And I said to my friend, is that the librarian? He went, that's Prof. Marshall. I went, Oh, it was made worse by the fact that when he spoke, the, the thing he got most excited about wasn't actually his latest commentary. It was his crusader class of eight-year-old boys that he took for Bible study on a Sunday afternoon at the local Methodist church. Eight-year-old boys with the great Professor Marshall? Yes, indeed. <laughs> And it was obvious that he really cared for those boys because Howard Marshall, just like Paul in Romans 1, got the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ drives us to mission to real people. Theology done properly drives us to be concerned about people. You know, I would really love it if we could grade our students at the end of each semester on their concern for others. 
you know, if you could get an HD for repeatedly seeking out other students who appear to be on their own or sitting beside someone different each day and making a real effort to get to know them and, and trying to encourage them in the gospel, on which there was credit for spotting when someone is struggling or simply a bit weighed down, because that's where the gospel should drive us. See, for us, in one, at one level, the best students are the most loving students. There's something wrong if studying theology leads us to completely ignore other people. (laughs) Because the gospel is about people. Just look at Paul. He's thoroughly concerned for and interested in the Romans. Verse 8, I thank my God through Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul thanks God for them. He prays for them. He prays specifically that as the apostle to the Gentiles, he'd have the chance to visit them. Now, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. If you were the apostle to the Gentiles, there's one place you'd really want to visit. It It should be Rome. See, Paul has both a strategic interest and an instinctive interest in Rome. Uh, I decided I was going to love Brisbane before I visited it for the first time. As I got on the plane to to fly up to to do some teaching at QTC long before there was any possibility of of us going, my Sydney host said in his usual, uh, and this is specific to him, okay? So don't get antsy if you're from Sydney. He said in his usual superior Sydney cider way, don't forget to put your watch back an hour and your calendar 40 years, Okay. (laughs) I'm not telling you who it was, but it was Luke Tattersall, if you're interested. And that was the moment I decided I was going to love Brisbane. Even if I hated it, I was going to come back off the plane and say, what a marvelous place. I just loved being there. Now, Paul's concern went a little bit deeper. His love for Rome wasn't just to spite Luke Tattersall. He said, look with me at what he says in verse 11. So, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some grace to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul's not, when he talks about this kind of spiritual gift here, he's actually talking about the Romans to understand the gospel, helping the the Romans to understand the gospel better. Whatever the word may mean elsewhere. Here, charisma means nothing more and nothing less than the grace which comes, comes from hearing and believing the gospel. Paul wants the Romans to be strengthened and encouraged and corrected through his teaching. And he wants to talk with them about the gospel so that he'd be encouraged too. And he really does want to come. Look at verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've really tried to come in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation. I'm a debtor to both the Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and foolish. I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. You can't miss the fact that for Paul, gospel ministry is all about people. Even here in Rome, it's the most detailed theoretical of his letters. It's about people. Let's make sure it's the same for us. It's easy when you're at college or a trainee, it's actually easy when you're a pastor or a church planter as well to get lost in the, idea, in the world of ideas and strategies. It's really easy to think that ministry is about theolo- theology and orthodoxy and strategy. And important as those things are, let's remember vital ministry is ultimately about people. As Paul's already said, gospel ministry is about seeing God bringing real, living, breathing, messed up people to the obedience of faith in Christ through the gospel. To be a Christian is to be a people person. Now, yeah, I know some of us are more sociable than others. Some of us are more relational than others. Some of us are instinctively more compassionate than others. Some of us are more, uh, are more uh, I've got more of a heart for people around us. But transcending all the advantages and limitations of our personality types is the basic responsibility to love one another as Christ has loved us and to love those with the gospel who do not yet know Christ. When we've lost sight of that, we'll do three more things. We'll make it all about me. Try to be clever. I don't know if you realize this, but you can't try to impress people and love them at the same time. It doesn't stop us trying, but, but you can't do it. 
When it's about me, it's not about you. Sometimes we make it all about numbers. We know this. The pressure is enormous. If you're a church ponder, you'll be asked thousands of times. So how many people were there on Sunday? And you know, people who know what it's like, when I meet someone who's planning a church, I think, okay, Gary, don't ask him about numbers. Don't ask him about numbers. Okay, so ask, you know, kind of, how's their wife, if they're married, and are they encouraged? And So how many people did you have there on Sunday? It's almost unavoidable. And I tell you, look, there's no escape from that. It's not just church planters. Okay, I'm the principal of a theological college. Okay? I think I've been asked about 20 times you know, today, so uh, how many students do you have at the college? It's kind of natural. But the, the problem with that is that, that I'm going, okay, goal of Queensland Theological College to get more students. It's not about numbers. As soon as I say those words, the gospel's not central anymore. God is sovereign. It's his work to bring people to the obedience of faith across this world. Not to grow a theological college or a church plant. Sure, we want the gospel to grow, but we make it about numbers and we lose sight of the gospel. And sometimes too, if I make it hard for you to be my friend, my partner in the gospel, I've lost sight of the gospel. One of the striking things about Romans is that Paul is passionate about gospel centrality, but encourages the Romans to be very generous. Later in the gospel, there's a row in Romans between the strong and the weak. It's a theological issue. The weak are the Jews. They're still keeping the Sabbath and eating the food laws. And Paul says, you know what? They're wrong. <laughs> okay? The strong, they're being smug because they're Gentiles. Jesus died so that we didn't have to do all that. What are you idiotic Jews doing that for? Paul says, you know, if you're strong, you've got to love the weak. If you're weak, you've got to love the strong. Because <laughs> they both believe in the gospel of justification by faith alone. Paul doesn't even try to sort out the theological mess in Romans. It's really quite striking. He just tells the weak and the strong to be partners in the gospel and get on with it. Because the gospel makes us people-centered and, and generous and relational and patient and forgiving without ever losing our, our grip on the center. But it frees us up to be gospel partners. And that takes us to the end of this marvelous introductory section. And almost it's just a small matter of verses 16 and 17 to deal with and then we're done. So let me do this quickly. Okay. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or something like that. Two faiths, and play around with the prepositions as you want. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For Paul says, life is, for Paul, his life is about Jesus because the gospel's all about Jesus. His life is about mission because the gospel drives us into mission. His life is all about people coming in new life in Christ and growing in Christ because that's what the gospel does in the life of people like you and me. That's why for Paul, he can sum up everything so far by saying his life is all about the gospel. In a beautiful piece of understatement, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, Paul never shuts up about it. The Jew who has been charged with making sure the message gets to non-Jews is going to proclaim Jesus come what may because he knows the gospel is so powerful that it brings dead people to life by awakening faith. This is the way in which God works. He says, this is how it works among people who know the Old Testament scriptures and those who don't. This is how it works in those who appear to be interested and those who aren't. That's why we need to continue to do everything we can to get people within earshot of the gospel. Because for Paul, if you can't hear it, you won't be rescued. He writes this in 1 verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here is the last ambivalent genitive for this evening, I promise. Is the righteousness of God an action or a gift? Is the righteousness of God a way of describing what God does in the gospel or what we get in the gospel? The answer? Yes. For Paul, the righteous God 
whom we see in action in the gospel, gives us his own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, crediting it to our account through faith. The righteousness of God is a huge term which Paul chooses because it's elastic enough to squeeze all this into. The righteous God righteously declares us righteous by faith through the gospel in the ultimate display of righteousness. That's why Paul in the rest of this letter feels free to use the term righteousness in several different ways. Usually this righteousness is God's gospel declaration itself, the announcement that people like you and I are justified by faith alone through grace in Jesus Christ. But sometimes for Paul, it's God's action in declaring us righteous. For Paul, it's all part of God's stunning action of our God in Christ, and it only operates through faith. He says it starts with faith, and it never gets past past faith in Christ. It's faith from day one to the end. It's faith from first to last. We're joined to Christ by faith. We live with Christ by faith, and we're transformed into the likeness of Christ by faith. We persevere by faith. It's all through grace and it's all by faith. Which is the point of the Habakkuk quotation. Like Romans 1 verse 5, Habakkuk 3, 14 links obedience and faith. Paul and Habakkuk say the same thing. Only by trusting God, looking to God, putting our faith in God, can we hope to find life and live in a way which honors and brings pleasure to God. Faith's the key to life. It's the key to obedience. For Habakkuk and Paul and for us, this is the gospel. This is the message which matters. This is the message which shapes Paul's life and ours. See, this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel which sets us free. This is the God which brings us life. This is the gospel which should scatter us to every corner of the world. This is the gospel that should move us to plant churches and pour our lives into rejuvenating churches. This is the gospel in which God both reveals his righteousness and gives it to us for free in Christ. Through this gospel, God shows us Jesus and awakens faith and transforms us. So for Paul, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is what matters. Is it what matters to you, to me? Yeah, sure, we'd all say, of course, the gospel matters. But for me right now, is it all about people? Or is it all about me? We've heard that challenge before today. For me right now, honestly, is it all about mission? with this great adventure of making Jesus Christ and his honor known. For me right now, is it all about Jesus and his beauty and his power? Whether our answer is yes or no, honestly before God. This evening, let's humble ourselves again and take hold of the gospel of God in both hands, which our God holds out to us. As we throw ourselves again on Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. Because Jesus is the gospel. And he says simply, trust me.